Welcome. You're listening to Gravity Healthcare Hacks with your host, Melissa Brown, Chief Operating Officer from Gravity Healthcare Consulting and self-professed healthcare nerd. Monthly, we will provide industry expertise and tips to help keep your feet firmly on the ground in the world of healthcare. Hi, and welcome to our guest today, Melissa Kiter. Hi, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you. So great to have you with us today. Melissa Kiter has been with Gravity for many years now, and I often introduce her to my clients as my own personal MDS guru because she knows all things MDS. And she's really great at analyzing data and trends and practices to help both new and experienced MDS coordinators function at the top of their game. I've seen Melissa improve CMI drastically and help providers identify missed opportunities under PDPM to the tune of thousands. Melissa Kiter, we're so glad you could take time out of your busy MDS consulting schedule to chat with us today and to help providers with some key ICD-10 coding questions and MDS coding questions under PDPM. What a great introduction. Thank you so much. Um, Very excited to be here today. Oh, that's wonderful. So let's just dive right in together. Let's start with some of the most basic questions that are vital for every provider during the pandemic. How should MDS coordinators code presumptive COVID on the MDS? Uh, This is a great question to start with, as it has stirred up much debate. Since a presumptive positive COVID-19 test result means a person has tested positive for the virus at a local or state level, but it has not yet been confirmed by the CDC. Mm. We can still code it on the MDS without the CDC confirmation as that is no longer required. However, if the provider documents, let's say suspected, possible, probable, or inconclusive COVID-19, we cannot use code U07.1. Instead, assign a code explaining the reason for the encounter, such as fever, let's say. That's really helpful. So what should a provider do if a resident had an exposure to COVID, but maybe they don't have symptoms or we don't have a positive test yet? Can they skill that resident straight from long-term care? This may be the number one question that is discussed amongst providers. First and foremost, um, per the AHCA guidance for new admissions, based on this CDC data, unless a person is tested for COVID-19 and negative before admitting them to your facility, you should assume the resident has COVID-19 regardless of them having or not having symptoms. So this means admitting the resident to the quarantine unit and placing them on 14 day isolation. Now to answer your question regarding skilling the resident, likely yes, if the following requirements are met per the Medicare manual guidelines. The resident requires skilled nursing services or skilled rehab services. The resident requires that these services, these skilled services, excuse me, um, are provided on a daily basis. And as a practical matter, the daily skilled services can be provided only on an inpatient basis in a SNF and that the services delivered are reasonable and necessary for the treatment of a patient's illness or injury. In addition, such patients may also be subject to the CDC, CMS, 
and AHCA isolation guidance for new admissions skilled eligibility mm-hmm. and may be receiving skilled observation and assessment services during the 14-day period that's identified. So daily documentation is the key to support the nursing skilled need. So all of you, um, director of nurses, staff educators, and um, us MDS coordinators, it is vital to provide education and re-education to your team regarding the significance of daily supportive documentation. Absolutely. You know, in some of the audits that we've done together this year, uh, we've even done some COVID-specific audits for clients to see if they had the appropriate daily supportive documentation. And, you know, it can be a, a real crisis for a community whenever they have an outbreak, even if it's just a handful of residents, all the increased testing and oversight, the anxiety on the team, people, staff members that might have to be quarantined, suddenly agency staff is in there. It creates a lot of challenges to get adequate daily supportive nursing documentation. So what what are some of the tips that you have or how would you recommend that clients should document to be able to skill a resident like that with presumptive COVID, um, but who doesn't have symptoms, but we're skilling them? How would you recommend they document? I absolutely agree that um, the the paperwork um, over patient um, care is um, something that we Unfortunately, we we should not be doing. Definitely our, our resident care comes first during this pandemic, but we also do have to provide the skilled um, daily documentation to support um, the resident stay, to, to support um, the services that we are providing to our, our residents. Um, I would suggest um, maybe coming up with a system um, based on shifts um, and units, so maybe um, day shift, um, they would do their daily documentation on unit A. Um, second shift, maybe they have their daily documentation assigned for unit B and so on and, and so forth. That would definitely alleviate um, each shift from documenting on all of the residents, every shift, just as long as we have daily supportive documentation for the skilled need is, is what we're looking for. Yeah, so let's walk through a typical example. So maybe a patient fell and fractured their hip at home. They got a hip replacement. Um, They're admitted from the hospital, presumptive for COVID, but they don't have a lot of symptoms at this point in time. Maybe they got exposed to COVID at the hospital. What would you recommend are some of the key points that you might document in a skilled daily note for that resident? So for that scenario, a resident um, who may have had the fracture, you would definitely want to make sure that you, you document um, the surgical wound, any surgical wound care that is being provided. I would document on their respiratory status, um, any um, oxygen that is being provided, maybe their pulse ox. Um, when that is being checked and monitored, I would document on their um, GI status, their GU status. We know that the nausea, vomiting, weight loss um, diarrhea, that's very common um, in COVID residents. We are seeing a lot of that. I would definitely make sure you have your vital signs documented, any increase in temps, things like that, any change in their respiratory pattern, um, any shortness of breath. If they are short of breath, what interventions are you putting in place um, to alleviate their shortness of breath? Those are some great tips that you've shared with us. 
I've gotten so many questions, as I'm sure you have, about how to capture isolation with COVID. And the truth is, we know COVID has not changed the rules in the RAI. So the ways we can capture isolation with COVID are the same as they are with any diagnosis. Can you take a moment here and walk us through what those requirements are for isolation? Absolutely. So to code for single room um, isolation, we can only code that when all, all of the following conditions are met. And I stress the word all. <laughs> um, the resident has an active infection with highly transmissible significant, significant pathogens that have been acquired by physical contact or airborne or droplet transmission. The precautions that you are providing are over and above standard precautions. That is transmission-based precautions, contact droplet and or airborne must be in effect. The resident is in a room alone because of active infection and cannot have a roommate. This means that the resident must be in their room alone and not cohorted with a roommate, regardless of whether the roommate has a similar active infection that requires isolation. And lastly, the resident must remain in his or her room all services must be brought to the resident. So rehab will be, will be done in the resident's room. Activities, they'll do one-to-one -one in the resident's room and all meals will be served in the resident's room. I've also seen a lot of questions about if the resident shares a room with another COVID positive resident, so they're cohorted together, or maybe it's an individual room, but they have a shared bathroom, but are otherwise isolated. What are your thoughts about how to code those people on the MDS? This actually has happened um, a lot with the quarantine units and the lack of space um, that has unfortunately happened in a lot of facilities. They've had to cohort um, COVID positive residents to the same room, but um, unfortunately, Regardless, if both residents are positive and isolated to the same room, they are not in a room alone. So therefore, they do not meet the requirements that are outlined in the REI manual. That's very clear. Now getting into more of a bit of a gray area, what if a resident was cohorted with another COVID resident, so they're in a shared room, and the other resident gets admitted to the hospital? If no other resident is admitted to that room, could we safely capture isolation for the remaining SNF patient? Yes, um, we can. Believe it or not, this scenario happens quite often. And the best way to answer this is to just again, follow the REI manual guidelines, which states um, the four very most important things um, that we just discussed. The residents um, must be in their room alone. And um, if this does happen, this scenario happens, during the residence assessment window, and the resident was in fact in a room alone for the remainder of the days in their assessment window, you can absolutely capture isolation. So what about if you were already past the five-day admission MBS, would you consider opening an IPA to capture isolation in this scenario? Absolutely, this is definitely a great, one of those great times where you can go back into the medical record, um, review the resident's uh, clinical status, see if maybe if there are any changes that are occurring, and then, yes, you can schedule an IPA. Wonderful.
Another challenging situation that we see from a lot of our clients is that a resident gets admitted to the hospital for COVID, perhaps went to the ICU, they were on a vent, and they no longer test positive for COVID. And the doctors actually stated the COVID was resolved in the hospital. In this scenario, could you code COVID as the primary or even a supporting diagnosis? Unfortunately, in this scenario, I would say no, that you cannot. Um, if the provider has clear documentation that the patient's COVID was resolved and the patient no longer has COVID-19, you would not be able to code the COVID diagnosis. Instead, um, you would assign a code for the personal history of, an, of other infectious diseases. And I believe that code off the top of my head um, is Z86.19. Okay. Okay, good to know. I've heard that uh, when the reason for admission is a respiratory manifestation of COVID-19, coders should assign the U07.1 or COVID-19 as the principal diagnosis, and then assign the respiratory manifestations as additional diagnoses. And this would be a scalable diagnosis then, the COVID-19 is our primary under PDPM and would map the resident into the pulmonary category. What are your thoughts? Yes, um, per the April revised ICD-10 coding guidelines, when the reason for admission is a respiratory manifestation of COVID-19, you would use the diagnosis code U07.1 for COVID-19 as your principal diagnosis and then assign the respiratory manifestations as additional diagnoses, which may include respiratory failure or viral pneumonia, et cetera. So what about for non-respiratory manifestations of COVID-19? So when the, the reason for admission is a non-respiratory manifestation for COVID-19, such as gastrointestinal symptoms, the ICD-10 coding guideline says that the coder should still code the COVID-19 as the primary diagnosis using the U07.1 and then code the non-respiratory manifestation as an additional diagnosis. What do you recommend and what errors have you seen around these? Although um, the manifestations are non-respiratory related, continue to code your COVID-19 um, U07.1 as your primary diagnosis followed by the symptoms that are present. Um, and that's per the new section added to the ICD-10 coding guidelines. And I've seen errors in these types of scenarios. Coders seem to question or second guess themselves when there are non-respiratory manifestations. But again, just follow on the ICD-10 coding guidelines manual when you have questions and this should and hopefully will prevent errors um, from occurring. Yes, absolutely. So what should an MDS coordinator do if a resident has a positive COVID test but has no symptoms? Does the physician have to document something in particular so we can count the COVID diagnosis? If a positive COVID-19 test is present in the medical record, if we have that proof, that lab um, test um, that is, is done, the resident is positive for COVID, you would absolutely code for the diagnosis, regardless if the resident is experiencing any symptoms or not. Um, having that positive um, lab test is that's definite confirmation of the virus with, um, without having your physician documentation. Okay. And let's talk about what if the test results are unknown or maybe due to supply chain issues, a test can't even be done. And the physician has documented perhaps 
that it was a possible or suspected COVID. We've heard you can use code Z20.828 for contact with or suspected exposure to other viral communicable diseases. We know, however, that this code is RTP, return to providers with PDPM. What do you suggest? Well, unfortunately, without physician documentation clearly stating that the presence of COVID-19 or confirming the diagnosis, you cannot code it. Um, as an MDS coordinator, I would follow up with a physician to see if he can provide some sort of documentation to confirm COVID-19. And in cases where the physician documents possible or uses the word probable, um, then you would code for the symptoms um, that are present, such as cough or shortness of breath, fever, et cetera. Okay, and so for my last challenging question of the day, if a resident was exposed to COVID, doesn't yet have a positive test, can we skill that resident for suspected exposure and potential to have COVID? Uh, likely, um, yes. Again, it is based upon the requirements being met for the Medicare manual guidelines. And most importantly, again, I cannot stress this enough, having the supportive daily documentation in the resident's medical record to support the skilled need. And just a little sidebar, um, for cases where there's a concern about a possible exposure to COVID-19, uh, but this is ruled out after evaluation, it would be appropriate to assign the code Z03.818, which is encounter for observation, for suspected exposure to other biological agents ruled out. And for cases where there is an actual exposure to someone who is confirmed to have COVID-19, it would be appropriate to assign the code Z20.828, which is contact with and suspected exposure to other viral communicable diseases. So I just wanted to um, throw that little piece of information out there. Thank you so much, Melissa Kiter. Sure. You know, it's no surprise to me. Every time we get together, you show me over and over again, you're such a wealth of knowledge. And I'm sure our Healthcare Hacks listeners have learned a lot today and perhaps gotten some confirmation on their instincts and the interpretation with the REI. As a final note, all the examples in this podcast were for educational purposes only. And each individual resident case would need to be reviewed by your team and the coding on the MDS needs to be determined on a case-by-case -case basis. If you're unsure how to code specific cases on the MDS, you can always reach out to us at gravityhealthcareconsulting.com. We also want to take a quick moment today to thank our sponsor, Flagship Rehabilitation. Flagship Rehabilitation is a contract therapy partner based out of the Mid-Atlantic region, providing physical, occupational, and speech therapy services to skilled nursing, CCRCs, life plan communities, home health agencies, and hospitals. Flagship's mission is to deliver person-centered care with innovative solutions and exceptional care models. Flagship Rehab champions clinically driven operations, drives quality outcomes, and fosters compliance monitoring and risk management using data analytics. Learn more at flagshiprehab.com today. Thanks for joining us. And if you enjoyed today's content, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. Remember, it's not just what you know, but how you apply it that makes all the difference. See you next time.